is we're going to not be working through a particular passage, but bringing a large portion of the New Testament particularly to bear on our topic today. And uh, so you're going, going to want to write those things down. And uh, so I recommend a pen or pencil uh, for that purpose. I'm going to read to us uh, as we begin today from a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where uh, Paul is talking about the body, the body of Christ, and uh, with the many members, etc. So I want to read uh, starting in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, So it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member... Where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Let's pray. Father, we come to you once again this morning and We worship you together. Call to mind who you are. As our God, there is none like you. You have created us. You sustain us. And you have redeemed us in Christ. We worship you and we praise you for Jesus and what he's done for us, what he has accomplished for us. Father, we praise you also today for the body of Christ into which you have placed us with its different members that look differently from one another, that function differently. And you do so for our good and for your glory. And this morning, as we look at this topic of membership in the body, I pray for your work by your spirit. May we hear from your word today and be be affected in our inner man. We ask that you'd be glorified today in Jesus' name. 
Amen. How important is it to be a part of a family? I remember we were at the lake one time, and this was several years ago, and uh, one of our children approached another child from another, uh, well, just a child playing on the beach there and said, uh, started, you know, a conversation, struck up a conversation. And a part of the early conversation was, do you have a lot of siblings? Because this child of ours thought having a lot of siblings is so much fun, right? It's just an important part of uh, growing up is your family. We had some American friends who were with us in Russia They were going through language school the same time we were, and they had gone to Russia for the purpose of working with orphanages. And they had gone into an orphanage that had a a large room full of infants. And so you can imagine with this big room with, I don't know, 20 or 30 beds, I don't know, and and all of these infants, you can imagine the, the noise, right? Actually, I'm not sure you can imagine the noise because there was none. These children, these, these infants in this orphanage situation in Russia, they, they had long ago given up crying. They, they knew they would uh, not get any particular extra help. They wouldn't get extra attention for crying, and so they had kind of given up on that. And so our friends said that it was eerie and sad to be in this room full of babies and no one's crying. It's because we need family. Those infants needed family, needed people around them to take care of them, to meet their needs, to recognize when they had need and to come in and pick them up, to change them, to do what needed to be done in their little lives. Family is important. Family is important. And the families that we grow up in give us some portion of our identity. They give us many of the tools that uh, that we Um, used to navigate life and do so well. If you think about the relationship between parents and, and, and children, there's a, an understanding, a relationship with authority in that context. And if you, uh, have siblings, you grew up with siblings, you've at least entered into the world of conflict resolution. Whether you figured out how to do that well or not, you've at least had some experience in that context. You've, you've learned about teamwork. You've learned about sharing. You may not like it but you've learned some things about it. These are, these are all aspects of growing up with siblings, of growing up in a family. When a person grows up without membership in a family, they can have some significant obstacles to overcome in life. Some things that, that many of us take for granted that others have to overcome. And so we come to our passage today, and we're not talking about family as in those who live within my household. We're talking about membership in the family here at church. Why talk about membership? Why talk about membership? Well, I have a a few passages that I want us to read that stir up thoughts on the topic of membership that we're going to dig into a little bit more as we go. But the first one is, is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. It's a very familiar passage. For, uh, for each of us probably let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not forsaking the assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There seems to be an emphasis in that passage on togetherness and the need for us to be together and not to forsake the gathering together, that we need to be together, not forsake that so that we can encourage each other, so that we can direct one another towards Christ. 
don't neglect to meet together. We are to be together. And there's another verse that uh, may or may not be as familiar to you, and that's Proverbs 18.1, which says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rejects all sound judgment. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He, he rejects all sound judgment. In other words, there can be no Lone Ranger Christians. That is to reject all sound judgment. To be on your own. You have no defenses. You have no people around you. You're actually seeking your own desire, according to Proverbs 18 and verse 1. And I don't have a particular passage in mind, but if you think about the one another's of the New Testament, how can we do the one another's of the New Testament if we're not around one another, if we're not together, if we're not committed to one another? How can we love one another? How can we outdo one another in showing honor if we're not together? How can we welcome one another, as the Bible says? How can we care for one another? How can we forgive one another? How can we comfort one another? How can we do the one another's of the New Testament if we're not a body, if we're not committed to one another? And Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17 says that church leaders keep watch over your souls. We talked about, uh, we talked about that uh, in the last couple of weeks that the, the leaders of the church, they are those who keep watch over your souls and they will have to give account for you give an account for your soul. So how can that be the case if you're scattered hither and yon? That implies membership in some capacity. And so why study membership? Why talk about membership? Why take an entire Sunday morning and, and devote to that topic? Well, those are some of the reasons. Just to raise those questions. Well, how do we address those things? How really do we comfort one another? How do we forgive one another? How are we committed to one another? How can we be subject to our leaders who will give an account to us if we're not together. And so that raises the question, why talk about membership? Well, I remember conversations that I've had with people and, and ways I used to think about it. I, I would ask the question, is membership, church membership even a biblical concept? I mean, find me the verse that tells me you must become a member in a church. Well, that, that was kind of my argument. So is church membership a biblical concept? Well, in your outline there, you've got that question being raised, and I want to address it from a few different directions. First of all, is the New Testament expectation of accountability to leadership? Accountability to leadership. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and verse 12 and 13, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So there's an admonition to have a particular relationship to those who are over you, those who have leadership in your congregation. There's a particular relationship that's expected. Likewise, I already referred to Hebrews 13 and verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So accountability to leadership is a New Testament expectation. It's, uh, it's exhorted in a few places, and I, I could have referred to a few more, but 
there are two things assumed in the arguments that the New Testament authors make. The first thing assumed is that people know which leaders they are to obey, which leaders they are to submit to. If you think about it in Fallon, little Fallon, there are all kinds of Christian leaders, all kinds of church leaders. So which ones are you going to submit to? Right? There's, there's some expectation, some assumption here that you know which leaders you are to obey. And then secondly, the leaders are to know which people for whom they will give an account. Are we as the elders at Parkside going to give account for, for those who are at another church somewhere or Christians who are not connected with any church? Will we give an account for them? It seems to be the understanding that there, there would be a knowledge by the leaders of the people they will answer for. And so there's an expectation of that kind of a commitment. There's a defined group seems to be implied when we talk about accountability to leadership in the New Testament. The Bible would have us be accountable to our spiritual leaders, to our elders. But we can't do that if we don't know which leaders are our leaders. The biblical expectation of accountability to church leadership argues, I think, for church membership so that you can clearly define those relationships And likewise, shepherds have a flock. Shepherds have a flock. Paul says to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. They are to care for their flock, the ones they've been entrusted with, their first responsibility is to the particular flock of God, which God has put them in oversight. There's a relationship. There's an assumed relationship in that context. Shepherds have a flock. Likewise, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Those in your charge that God has put in your charge. There seems to be an assumption that Peter is making here that God has established a church and a relationship between the leaders in that church and the congregation of that church. The elders know those for whom they are uh, to give an account. The elders know those that they've been given responsibility of. There seems to be a defined relationship in that regard. The shepherds of the church have a responsibility to shepherd the flock that the Holy Spirit has given into their care. Not to shepherd someone else's flock. Not to shepherd those outside their flock. They've been given responsibility to shepherd over the flock that the Holy Spirit has given into their care. And they cannot do that if they don't know who makes up the flock. I think it's an assumption in the New Testament text. Thirdly, church discipline. Everybody's favorite topic, right? Church discipline. Did you know for the reformers, this was one of the, one of the elements that was essential to a true church was the, the, uh, the right usage of church discipline. Church discipline. We don't talk about that a whole lot in our day, and really, in our day and age, it's not frequently done that there would be any kind of accountability that that members of a church or attenders of a church would actually have to the leadership of the church or to the congregation at large. But we read this in Matthew chapter 18. This is a familiar passage for everyone. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault 
between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. How can we make sense of this passage if there's no definition of who is the church? To whom shall we take this brother's sin? Shall we just tell every Christian we see about so-and-so's sin when we get to that point of church discipline? Is that what we ought to do? Of course not. You would hope we didn't do that, and I would hope we wouldn't do that. There seems to be a defined membership that we, that we talk to when we get to that stage of church discipline, having talked to that person one-on-one and no response, and then having taken two or three, or one or two with us and talked to them and no response in that context. And then when we bring it to the church, there's got to be a church that you bring it to. You don't post it on Facebook for all your Christian friends to read as a stage of church discipline. That's not church discipline. So there seems to be an expectation. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, Paul says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Seems to imply a delineation. Those who are outside, those who are inside. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those who are outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So Paul's talking about the context of church discipline also. And he says, we don't, as a church, discipline someone who's outside our church. They're outside. That's for God to deal with out there. That's not our responsibility. Where church discipline applies, where we hold one another accountable is in here. It's in the defined uh, confines, the outline that is the church. There's a distinction between inside and outside the church. Plus, there has to be some way to put people from within the church at some point to outside the church. Likewise, Paul, talking in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 4, says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He's talking about a specific instance of church discipline. He says, put that person out. Deliver that person from within the confines to outside the confines. You have to know where the fence is before that can even be done. Discipline in this context also is to, to occur when you are assembled. That implies we're all assembled together. Not just you and a couple of buddies, you know, or we in our small group or something like that. And so-and-so, you know, requires church discipline. So we as a connect group are going to discipline that person and put them out of our connect group. No, that's not the context. When we, when the entire church are assembled, we are to proceed with this. Membership in the assembly needs to be distinguishable. When we are to take a vote in such a context, when we are to decide in that context with this person about them being expelled, about them being put out, who should we let vote? You see, uh, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 6, Paul says, for such a one another discipline situation, this punishment by the majority is enough. Seems to be an implication there that in another instance of church discipline, 
there would be a discussion amongst the church and a decision together by the majority to, to put this person out because of this unrepentant sin that this person is in. The majority, I mean, I, I wasn't a math major, but I think you've got to have, you've got to know what your total number is before you can determine what is 50% plus, right, to obtain the majority. It seems to imply membership, seems to imply a definition of who is within that group. So the, the topic of church discipline is not a super common one. And praise the Lord, we've not had to use it often here. People tend to be responsive when you go to them one-on-one and talk to them about their sin. Or when you take a small group and you go and talk to them about their sin, people tend to be responsive in that context. But the Bible specifies for us that, that it may go beyond that at some point, And it may actually involve the entire congregation. And if it's a loved one of yours that's caught in that sin and is unrepentant, where would you like that dirty laundry to be aired? On Facebook? In the newspaper? Before every Christian that any of us meets? Or before the church body? I think it's clear that we would want that to be taken care of within the church body, and that's the expectation that the New Testament has for us. We need to have clear boundaries before we can understand how to operate in a church discipline context. Fourthly, family matters. Family matters. Every family, by the way, has its own quirks, right? Its own ways of doing things. And uh, my family is no different than yours. But there's something unique about being a part of the Beheimer family. There, there are quite a few things <laughs> unique about being a part of our family. And I recognized one of them this week as we were, uh, I drove up to Cowboys Rest on Monday and, and helped drive students back. And I had my vehicle loaded with my kids. And as we were pulling out from Eureka, I said, Payekali, which is a Russian word that means we're out of here. And I hear from the back, back seat, what? What? I, I had forgotten there was someone in our car who was not a beehimer and didn't know what that meant. We function a particular way. We have our own language. We have our own vocabulary. And that's just one of the very few Russian words that we pull out. It's part of what it means to be a beehimer is to recognize those words. And we've got some other unique ones that we do. And that's just one of them. But when I, when I used that word, when I used that, that terminology, this person was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. But what, what did you say? I heard syllables. It wasn't even a word. There was a non-Beheimer in our midst, and so it caused confusion. Well, in the topic of family matters, when you're discussing the church in the New Testament, there's confusion if we don't have a delineation of, of who are within the family. Those members of the family, there's confusion. For example, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, this is the widow's list. This is where Paul is telling Timothy about how to address widows in the congregation, how to take care of them, etc. And he has quite a bit to say about that, but he says this in, in 1 Timothy 5, verses 9 and 10. He says, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work. So he's talking about what are the qualifications. I mean, we talked about qualifications for elder, for overseer, right, for deacon. Well, here's even a qualification for a widow to be put on this particular list. Certain aspects that needed to be true of her. But that begs the question, where do we, where do we find these widows? 
Are, are we as a congregation responsible for every widow who meets these qualifications within Churchill County? Within Nevada? Where's the boundary? For which widows do we go through this process and, and, and put them on the list and provide for their needs? Which ones do we care for? It's not that we don't care for. It's not that we're, we don't love widows who are not in this congregation. But the commitment, the, the expectation, the responsibility in this context seems to be widows within the church. Those who are in our group who meet this context. Not just someone in Churchill County who meets these qualifications. And so that, that aspect of family business, of family matters within the church, needs some clarification. If we don't know where the boundaries are, we're going to be confused in how we apply that instruction. Likewise, in congregational decisions, Acts chapter 15 and verse 22, you had this situation, if you want to turn to Acts 15, this, the Jerusalem council, you've got the church meeting together. There had, there had arisen some difficulties within the church that uh, there had been some who had traveled to Antioch and they were, they were teaching um, that you had to obey certain aspects of the law in order to be saved, etc. This is kind of the same sort of context Paul was dealing with in the book of Galatians. But if you look at Acts chapter 15 and verse 22, it says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. There had been this conference. There had been a, a gathering together of all of the Christian leaders, really. All of the significant Christian leaders in the world had gathered together. They had talked over this very difficult issue. They had resolved it. They had decided what they were going to do. And it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. There seems to be a defined group of who is the church making this decision to be able to decide that together, the The whole church is an identifiable group. Likewise, in Galatians chapter 6, Paul says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Yet we're to do good to all men, but we have a special obligation to look out for in in an especial way those who are of the household of the faith. There's a way to define who that is. There's some sort of definition in that regard. And then finally on this point, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 23, Paul says, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? He has a a way to speak of the church that the whole church is together. There's a way to think about our church so that we can say the whole church. We can refer to the majority of the church. We could talk about the widows who are from within our church that we are to care for. We can talk about the church as a definable entity. The whole church comes together. That's a known event. The group can be identified. So these are all just discussions of family business, right? Family business seems to imply that you can define who the family is. And then fifthly, you've got the body metaphor from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and in Romans and in other places, you've got the metaphor of the body 
This is what I read at the opening where there was a discussion of the body with many of its parts. It's got different members, but they function together as one body. There's a a sense in which we are members of one another. Well, the question, if we are members of one another and one is the hand and one is the knee and one is the foot, do we define that every time we happen to be together as a congregation? Okay, who's going to be the appendix today? We're looking for an appendix, okay? That's usually the one that gets cut out, so (laughs) nobody's going to volunteer for that one. How do you define it? Is there a foot? Or is it changed week after week? It seems to be that there's a definable hole. There's a definable boundary for who are the members of one another. Who should be treated as the hand or the foot or other body part? Anyone who shows up that day? Oh, do you want to be the, you want to be the hand today? Yeah, you can be the hand today. No, it's a, we function together. We're part of a body. I don't swap out hands. I know surgeries can be done and replace things and uh, give you a new heart and stuff, but that's not normal. <laughs> it's not common. It's not the way we live our everyday lives. This is my hand, okay? If I break my hand, I can tell, okay? There's a relationship, likewise, between the individual and the whole flock. There's a relationship between the individual member and the entirety of the body. We don't, in our, in our physical lives, we don't usually feel the physical pains of other people, right? If, if your knee hurts... If you were out running and you twisted your ankle or your knee or something, well, I can sympathize with you and I can, I can feel for you. I can recognize that you have pain, but I walk fine. I don't limp because you sprained your knee, right? Now, I've heard about some, uh, some probably very good uh, fathers-to-be who actually will, you know, when their wife is pregnant, she's going into labor, that they themselves will actually experience sympathetic labor pains. I don't know if that's a real thing or not, because as much as I love my wife and as many children as we've had, and I don't like to see her suffer, but her pain is her pain. I mean, you know, I I hold her hand and I, you know, care for her and I am sorry for her, but my belly's fine, okay? (laughs) There's nothing going on here that's caused by by her. Maybe, Maybe I'm just heartless. I don't know. But there seems to be a sense in which a body has its own parts. And we sense when our own parts are injured or broken or in labor and not those of other people. And I think that kind of contributes to the notion in the idea that that, uh, we ought to have a defined boundary of who we are. Otherwise, a hand may hurt, but it doesn't make any sense that I can't tell if it's mine or not. Somebody's hand is broken. Who, whose hand is that? Is it, I can tell if it's mine because my body is a defined entity. If your hand is broken, I don't feel it because you're not a part of my body, which is a defined entity. And so when Paul uses that kind of language, when he talks about how we are fitted together, it seems to imply boundaries. It seems to apply the... The, the, to imply the ability to identify which hand is mine, which knee is mine, and which is not. So that brings us to uh, some concluding remarks. First of all, the first conclusion is that membership, I believe, is expected of believers. I think it's assumed in each of these different passages for these different reasons. It's assumed. 
It's expected of believers. All of these passages and all these topics seem to show an expectation that the believers are a committed part of the local congregation such that it can be identified whether you are someone else's hand who's hurting or if you are our hand who is hurting. It's expected of believers. I believe that's the New Testament expectation that Christians would band together as a church. Secondly, not only is it expected of believers, but it benefits believers. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 13 is an excellent example of the benefit to believers that, that, that the body, a definable body makes, and that is uh, this, this verse. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Being together as brothers and sisters in Christ, gives us the opportunity to exhort, to encourage one another, to direct one another to look to Christ, to identify when there's sin so that it can be, you know, headed off at the pass, to, to encourage when there's downheartedness, when, there's, when, when faith is lagging, when there's need, God has given us to each other to support each other that direction. One benefit is protection as well as correction from doctrinal and behavioral error. As well as from the isolation that can cause such harm in a Christian's life and faith. Another benefit is provision of material concerns, emotional needs, relational concerns, spiritual companionship. When we're together, we can help each other in the ways that are needed as a body joined together. Another benefit is that we have that community, and from that comes identity and companionship. Those are some of the benefits that membership has to believers. And then thirdly, I believe this is God's design and his strategy. God's design and his strategy. I say it's God's design for the reasons I've given, the way the body is described, the way the uh, membership is described, and how church discipline and all that is to function. But I say strategy because of this. What Jesus says in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, again, this is not a new verse to us. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It seems to be that what Jesus is saying here is this is not just a motivation for us to love one another. This is not just for us to take care of each other. All of those things are true. We are to look after each other in that way, sacrificially providing for, for each other, caring for one another. But there's a, there's a strategic element to it that when we do that, not only are we cared for, not only is God glorified in our midst and our needs are met, but while that is going on, there is a presentation going on to the world. And, and all men will know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. It's actually carries with it a strategy for evangelism. If you're trying to be an evangelist, but you're not connected with any kind of a church, there are all manner of problems. I remember being at a uh, function in our community several years ago. And uh, 
And I spoke there and someone was talking to me afterwards and, and he was some kind of a self-appointed evangelist, self-appointed missionary and was disconnected from every church. I asked him, what church do you go to? Oh, I'm not really from Fallon. Oh, what church do you go to back where you're from? Well, I don't really. And, and he's not connected with any church. Well, as soon as he said that, of course, I'm not a part of the world in that sense. But, but I immediately discarded what he had to say. If no one else is going to endorse this guy, if he's not committed to anyone, if no one is committed to him, if he's not accountable to anyone, if he can't have relationship of long-term commitment, why do I care to listen to what he says? And it's a similar way for the unbeliever. When they look at the Lone Ranger Christian who, who is trying to share the gospel, well, God, of course, can still save that person. But there's a giant question mark that comes along with his testimony because he is disconnected from the local church. Jesus said one of the strategies for people believing that we are his disciples is by our love for one another. It's part of God's design. It's part of God's strategy. It's an aspect of outreach. It provides nurture and care because our leaders know who we are and care for us. It's another benefit to us in that context. And part of God's strategy to care for you in that way and part of God's strategy to nurture and care because the body around you knows that you are a member of that church, that body, and knows to take care of you in a specific way. Take care of you personally. Be involved in your life in that way. It's part of God's strategy to minister to you as a Christian. So just reflecting on a couple of excerpts from what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. The body does not consist of one member, but of many members and God is the one who arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. God arranges that. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. And if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. When one of us suffers, we suffer. When someone not in this context, suffers. We may not know about it. And even if we do know about it, we usually don't suffer in the same way. We are connected with one another, one another as members of one body. So that's the context. That's the idea, the argument from the New Testament, I believe, for church membership, that we ought to be committed. We ought to be connected for these reasons. And so what's the application for us? I think the application is pretty clear. Commit yourself as a member if you've not done so already. It's for your benefit. It's for your protection in your Christian life. And it's also an expectation, I believe, for every Christian from the context of the New Testament. So become a member. Why, why would you want to remain on the outside of that? Why would you want for there to be a, a, a defined area of people caring for each other and you be out here? A defined area where you've got leaders, leaders uh, protecting you and, and providing for you and teaching you and, and providing all those things that God has put together and you be on the outside of that. If you're not a member, 
come and talk to us, consider becoming a member or committing yourself to us, to this body. Secondly, as members of the body, look at your fellow members as members of the same body, as family members in the same household. That when we see each other, we have a special affection, a special care, a special tenderness, a special commitment to provide for one another. That we don't for those who are beyond the confines of this church. It's not that we disregard them. It's not that we don't care. It's our our obligation, our commitment, our greater responsibility is to one another in this way. And so look to your fellow church members as members of the same body, members of the same household. And then thirdly, give thanks to God that He has so provided for us in this salvation that He's called us to, that many think of salvation in terms of deliverance from future judgment, and that's it. That's all it means to come to Christ is I have my ticket to get into heaven. I get to dodge, you know, the, the God's wrath for my sins, and that's all salvation is. And, of course, that's, that's not the entirety of the gospel at all. That's not the entirety of what God has accomplished for us. Not only in Christ, when we trust in Christ, has he delivered us from that future judgment for our sins. Not only that, but he has also made us alive now. He's put his spirit within us now. He's working to change us now so that even now he's conforming us to the image of his son. So that in a sense, that future deliverance is brought into the present. Not only am I delivered from that future judgment, I'm already delivered because Jesus bore my judgment in his body on the tree. Not only that, but it's as if portions of that future deliverance come into my life now and I'm made new now. I pass from spiritual death to spiritual life where he's, he's renewing my inner man day by day where he is conforming me even now into the image of his son. That this salvation, when, when, when I recognize my own utter need before God, when I trust in Christ and I find that my sin has been placed upon him and punished in him, I find that he obeyed where I have disobeyed so that the, 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 the record is complete. And then by faith in Christ, that's applied to me. I have peace with God, but that's not only a distant future reality and then I'm just going to have to eke out a living in the here and now. No, he's also taken parts of that future deliverance and brought it into the present so that I'm made new now. So that anyone is in Christ is a new creation. That's a pulling back into our time of what's in the future so that we're made new. And God is at work in us even now, even while we're in this life, even while we're in this body, he's conforming us to the image of his son. He's working sanctification in us right now. So it's not just that future thing, but he's working now. But that's not all either. Because when we, by faith, enter into Christ, when we are placed in him, we are also placed into a body. We have brothers and sisters around us on the same journey, at different stages on that journey. Some who have gone before and they have learned and they they can tell you where you're going to sprain your knee and how to avoid that. They can help you. They can minister to you. They can care for you when you fall down that we get to be saved into a body, into a family. 
And we travel with one another on that journey. This salvation that God has provided us in Christ is massive. It's not just a future uh, deliverance from some future thing. It, it has its realities now internally in our own lives, and it has its realities now here in this way so that the New Testament can refer to the church as the temple of the living God. That's the church. That's what this salvation is. That's what we've been saved into. That's what we get to participate in when we are members in this body of Christ and members in this local expression of that body. What a salvation we have. What a deliverance God has given us, not, not only from future judgment, certainly from future judgment, wrath for our sins. That has been placed on Christ if we are in Christ. Not only that, though, but he's at work even now, making us new, working in our lives, conforming us to the image of his son, he is at work shaping us even now and a large aspect of the way he does that is not just the spirit internally, not just as we read God's word, not just as God works providentially in our, in our lives, but as brothers and sisters in Christ, as we are together, we are the context in which God ministers to us so often. This is where God is at work in us in very special ways. And so this salvation that we have in Christ is a wonderful thing. We've not been left alone. We've not been, we've not been saved. And then, and then uh, we'll see you when we get there. We, we have the spirit within us. We've got the work that God is doing now and he uses you and he uses me to work in one another to accomplish that purpose. And I, for one, want to be involved in that. I, for one, want to be a part of that. I, for one, don't want to be outside the confines of that. I want to be together with you. And it's my desire that you would be together with us as well, that, that we could direct one another, that in our conversation with one another, we can continually and repeatedly direct one another's eyes, direct one another's attention to Christ. And by that means, God works within us. And by that same means, the world around us knows that we are his disciples by our love for one another. Peter reflects on this topic in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Father, this has been a whirlwind tour through uh, the New Testament, uh, mostly, trying to uncover, trying to look at what it means to be members of the body. In Christ, as Christians, we are members of the universal body of Christ. That's, that's just a fact. But it seems, as we look through the New Testament, it seems as 
as we look at how we are to relate to one another, the way the church is to function, it seems that we are to have a commitment to one another as a local expression of that body. Committed to each other in such a way that we could know who is, who is a part of that commitment and who is not. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to think about this if, if we've not before. I pray that, that uh, we would value your body, value your church, value the function of your church the way these New Testament authors do. And, Father, I rejoice that when you saved me, you didn't just give me a ticket to heaven. You didn't just... Uh, Give me a way to bypass judgment, wrath for my sin. But you put your spirit within me. You made me alive in Christ. You gave me newness of life. I became a new creation. And I thank you that that's not all. But that you also placed me into the body of Christ. A defined group of brothers and sisters who will encourage me, exhort me, who will pray for me, who will... Hold me accountable, who will love me and comfort me. Father, I pray that you would be honored in this local expression of your body. We pray that you would do your great work here, and we pray also that as we love one another as as Christ has done, that indeed those around us would know that we are his disciples, that many would come to know you through this ministry. Father, we thank you and we praise you and we rejoice in this salvation that we have in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. A couple of things before uh, we close. I want to remind you of the State of the Church meeting that will be uh, next Sunday evening at 6. And again, that's going to be in here. That's going to be a a special live stream provided for that with uh, passcodes and all that kind of stuff. Um, But then this evening, we will have evening church here at 6 o'clock as we do, and we'll finish at 7. And uh, the challenge last week was to do the Old Testament in 30 minutes. And I finished by 7, 7.01, but it wasn't 30 minutes, I was reminded. But Woody helped me out by singing faster. <laughs> so we could. Tonight, we're going to do the New Testament, okay? The goal is to get through the New Testament to look at that. Um, if you want to pray with someone, if you want to talk to someone about membership... There's going to be a family up here to uh, pray with you, and you can talk to one of the elders about membership. But as we're going, these words from Paul in Romans chapter 15, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. God bless you all. You're dismissed.